Our sermon today is taken from John 19, verse 17 to 30. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucify him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each shoulder. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciples took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Grace. Friends, if this is your first time to CCC, it's uh, good to see you. My name is Tazar. I am one of the elders here. Uh, uh, Brett and Gray are the other elders at CCC. If you want to know more about the church or just get to know us, we'd love to meet with you after the service. And one more announcement before we start with the sermon is that if you joined the membership class or the catch-up membership class uh, the past few weeks and you do have decided that you do want to become a member at CCC, we'd love to meet you. Uh, and please come up to us and not meet you, sorry. We'd love to uh, uh, hear that you want to be part of the class and come up to us uh, and we will install you as a member next Sunday because next Sunday is our public installment. So let us know and then we can install you uh, with all the other people who have also uh, voiced their interest in being members at CCC. All right. So we're moving forward in our sermon series through the Gospel of John. And we're finally arriving at the scene that we just read, which is the scene of the cross, the climactic fulfillment of God's redemptive plan as it's been built up throughout the book of John and even throughout the Bible, really. And what John is trying to do here as he's describing the cross event, is that he's giving us insight into what's really actually going on in this scene. Because to the naked eye, what's happening here would have been the most repulsive event you would ever see. Right? Where Jesus loses, he's being humiliated, he's stripped off of his authority and honor by a type of Roman death penalty where the point of it, as a historian once stated, 
was not just to kill the criminal, but to kill the criminal while inflicting as much pain and shame as possible, limited only by the extent of their sadistic creativity. That's what the naked eye would have seen. But what John is claiming to be true here, and if us, the readers, believe it to be true, it will turn this revolting and disgraceful sight into the most beautiful and life-changing scene you'll ever see. And it'll transform an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory. Let's pray for that before we begin, that the Father will give us eyes to see and ears to hear his revelation through this cross. Pray with me. Father, we now come to the fulfillment, the climactic point of your story where you yourself traded places with us and died the death that we deserve for our sins and took the wrath we deserve for our rebellion and covered us from our shame. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, impart your spirit to our hearts that it may be sensitive and attuned to the words of truth in this passage a truth only you can reveal to us through your word, through your spirit, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three things I want to point out from our passage today. Point number one is the truth of his kingship. Point number two is the truth of our unity. And point number three is the totality of our redemption. The truth of his kingship, the truth of our unity, and the totality of our redemption. Let's, let's start with point number one. The truth of his kingship. Let's go to verse 16b, and I said verse 16b because I'm referring to the second half of verse 16. That's where our passage starts today. So verse 16b to verse 17. So they took Jesus, or literally in the Greek, is they took charge of Jesus. Verse 17. And he, Jesus, went out bearing his own cross. Now, to bear one's own cross means that you're carrying it yourself. And that's a normal practice during the crucifixion that the alleged criminal is forced to carry their own cross all the way to the place that they're going to be crucified. And the way they would do this is by putting the bottom part of the horizontal section of the cross atop of their shoulders and their back, which is not at all the preferred way to carry a cross for Jesus, especially since the skin off his back has just been torn apart by flogging, as we saw last week. Jesus was forced to carry this all the way to the place which he is to be crucified, where in this case, as we saw, was known by its Aramaic name, Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Verse 18, they crucified him. So after a criminal reaches the place of crucifixion, they'd be laid down on top of the cross, their hands stretched out across the horizontal part of the cross, and it'd be nailed to it. And their feet would be given a kind of small stepping stool so that they can partially support the body weight so if they need to gasp for air, they can do so. But this wasn't meant to relieve agony. It was meant to increase and prolong the period of the criminal's life. This is what Jesus went through. Now the point of the cross wasn't only to hurt or killed their criminal, but a big part of it was also to dishonor them. Let's look at all the ways in which they tried to shame Jesus in this process. First, 
Jesus was placed in between two other criminals, in the center. Why? Because the center place at that time and day was the place of honor. Now, this wasn't actually them giving him honor. This was a sarcastic jab. Remember when they put the purple robe, which is a kingly robe, on Jesus when he was being flogged? That wasn't actually honoring Jesus either. That was another mocking of him. So he here is placed in the middle part because he, was, um, he claims to be king throughout his whole life. So if you're a king, if you're so important, we're going to put you in the middle. This too was a form of mockery. The second thing they did, if you go to verse 19, it says that they wrote something uh, on a wooden sign and placed it atop of his cross, so above his head, and it reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now to write the legal charge of the crime in which the criminal is accounted as guilty for, that's a normal part of the crucifixion back then. But again, this was done in a way to Jesus that was sarcastically mocking him, as if to say, look at this king. Look at him. And verse 20 tells us that the sign was written by Pilate in three different languages. And you remember what was happening here is that it was during the Passover celebration where many people from many places were there. So just to make sure that everybody there understood the mockery that was going on, they wrote it in three of the most commonly known languages of the day, Aramaic, which is the language that the Jews understood best, Latin, which is the language most familiar to the Romans, and Greek, which is the common trade language that everybody there would have understood. Picture that scene. That's what's going on now. And if anyone in this whole scene is supposed to be feeling insecure and petty and anxious about their reputation and their public image, it would be Jesus, right? He's being publicly shamed here. But then, look at the contrast in the next verse. Look at how John describes the Jews and Pilate in verses 21 to 22. It's interesting that they were actually the ones being described as being insecure and petty, not Jesus. Let's go to verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of Jews. Here, here's what's happening here. Stick with me. This is Pilate's last jab to the Pharisees. Remember this whole time, there was a power struggle between Pilate and the Jews and the Pharisees, right? Remember a few weeks back, we talked about how the Pharisees here described as the Jews, they wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus was preaching a gospel that was totally opposite to their message and Jesus was winning followers and taking people away from the camp of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees wanted Jesus dead and gone. But the way they could do that is that they had to go through the Roman court of law uh, because it would be unlawful for them to just kill Jesus on their own. So they wanted to make up a false charge that would cause him the death penalty. So to do this, they had to go through Pilate, who was a high Roman official. And, and the way they did this is that they made up this false charge saying that Jesus is this military religious cult king type person who's going to overtake Rome. So they're saying, look, Pilate, this guy's about to overtake Rome. you got to crucify him. And they kind of routed up the crowd to get on their team, and Pilate felt pressured. Okay, I have to crucify this Jesus because these people are saying that if I don't crucify Jesus, he's going to take over Rome. So Pilate lost the power struggle, and he gave in to their scam. He knew it was a scam all along. He knew it was all a lie. 
But he had to give in because the Jews overpowered him. He crucified Jesus, although Pilate didn't want to. But here we see, although Pilate lost this power struggle between him and the Jews, he wouldn't go down without one last jab to the Jews. So he purposely wrote in three different languages the inscription above Jesus' cross, King of the Jews, as his legal charge. Now, he could have been more specific and wrote, The man who claims to be the false king. He could have been more specific and wrote, The rebel who wants to overthrow Rome. That was his legal charge. But he chose instead to write very generically, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Why? To shame the Jews. He purposely wrote it in such a generic way so that the foreigners that were there at the time, at the Passover, who doesn't know the context of the crucifixion, might actually misunderstand and think that Jesus was actually a Jewish king who was being crucified. This was Pilate's last jab to the Jews saying, okay, fine, I'll give in to your scam. You've beaten me. You've, you've got the crowd to go against me. You forced my hand to crucify this Jesus, but I'm going to embarrass you in public while I do it. That's why the Jews responded so anxiously. They were scared. Their image is being attacked. Don't write the king of the Jews, but be more specific. Write, this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. He's saying, come on, Pilate, be more specific here. You're, you're embarrassing us. What are people going to think? They got to know the whole context. They're going to think that he's actually a Jewish king that's being crucified. Don't do that. To where Pilate answered in verse 22, too bad. I've written what I've written. <laughs> you see. Throughout the scene, the Jews, the Pharisees, are described to be the insecure and needy people who have to anxiously protect their public image. And Pilate is the insecure man who got his ego hurt so badly, he just had to have the last word. Think about this. These were the two most prominent people in the whole region at that day the highest religious leaders and the highest religious military leader, second only to Caesar himself, Pilate. They had all the power, all the recognition, all the honor, all the acclaim that this world could possibly give them. And Jesus was the least, most lowly person in the scene. But yet, it was the Jews and the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the Jews and Pilate, that were portrayed as being most insecure. They were the ones that needed to micromanage their public perception. They were the ones who needed their egos stroked a bit more. Why? Because that's exactly where they find their honor in, people's perceptions. The Jews looked religious, but really it was never for God. They were just in it to look good. Let's go to John chapter 12, verse 43. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the Jews' MO. They wanted public acclaim. That's where they found their honor and identity in. And Pilate, petty Pilate, the kind of guy who would never be willing to admit defeat. You know someone like that? I'm someone like that sometimes. Ask my wife. They can't stand being wrong, and they always have to have the last word. Why? Because Pilate, his whole life, he's been honored. His identity is found in overpowering others in battle. He's a military leader, see? 
What happened here is that he lost against the Pharisees. He was overpowered. So when the basis of his honor and identity was crushed, he became petty and jabbed back. His ego was like a large, empty glass ball. It looked big and shiny from the outside, but really, it was fragile and light. But why? Why were they the ones portrayed as insecure when Jesus was the one who was being mocked? And by the way, Jesus' mockery hasn't ended yet. Let's go to verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each uh, soldier, also his tunic. Now, the tunic is the inside part of the clothing. So the clothing back then included of two parts, the, the, the garments, which is the outer clothing, and the tunic, which is the inside clothing. The tunic kind of looks like a full-body pajama, but sleeveless. And verse 23 and 24 describes that both Jesus' outer garments and inner tunic was at the possession of the soldiers below. So in other words, on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked, exposed to thousands of people. If anyone in this scene were to feel shame and insecure, it should have been Jesus, but yet he remained silent. Like a lamb, the Old Testament says, willingly brought to the slaughter. Why? Why was he not the insecure one? Because unlike the Jews and Pilate, Jesus had an identity that cannot be taken away by this world. He had an honor that this world could never tarnish. What was his identity? Well, let's take a look again uh, at the taking of the tunic scene, which is probably the most humiliating part of this whole scene, right? But yet it is exactly here when Jesus shows to the world his power and his honor. The soldiers were described to be casting lots for the tunic. Why? Because uh, it was one woven seamless piece. So it'd be a waste to rip it apart and divide it by four. So what they did was, uh, uh, in their selfishness and in their mockery, they cast out lots. To cast out lots is kind of like, which is a mockery, in itself to be doing this under the cross, but it's kind of like playing hompimpa or any mini mini moo below the cross, which is a mockery in itself. Who's going to get the tunic? But in the midst of all this, the most shameful scene of this whole story, unknown to them, Jesus was actually showing off to the world his true identity. What do I mean? Look at verse 24. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This sentence was written in Psalm chapter 22, verses eight, verse 18, which is all the way back in the Old Testament, way before Jesus was born, foreshadowing the event of the cross. God has written the cross into the blueprint of redemptive history all along. This was the plan. Unknown to the soldiers and Pharisees and Pilate, who meant this for evil, King Jesus willed it all along and meant it for good. See this, you read this, and it reverses everything. The whole story. All of a sudden, the readers get it. He's not losing. He's winning. John is calling the readers here in verse 24 to no longer look at this scene now with merely earthly eyes, but look at it with theological eyes now. The tunic event which was meant to humiliate, humiliate Jesus, see now with different eyes, and you see this is Jesus' will. This was plan A. 
And then you remember verse 16, and, and it says, they took charge of Jesus, and now you start to think, who's actually in charge of who here? He's showing off his kingship right now. He's revealing his power, his identity. So they thought they're mocking Jesus by inscribing a sign that says King of the Jews in three different major languages at the time. But really, in an ironic way, they were just proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is, that Jesus is king and he rules. Even at this very moment, this sign was meant to shame Jesus ended up being the truthful declaration of who he is to all tribes, tongues, and nations that were there which is God's plan all along. The truth that he is king, an identity that can't be robbed by this world. The truth that he has an honor which cannot be stained by these earthly humiliations. See, the Pharisees and Pilate looked to their surroundings to find their identity. They looked to what's going on in earth to find honor. Jesus looked up to the objective truth written above his cross that towers above all the earthly messes and remains true no matter what's happening down below, that he is king. A truth difficult to see, especially in the midst of all this suffering, but remains true nonetheless. I wonder how it'll affect our hearts and soul to take a glance at the sufferings in our lives with theological eyes rather than earthly ones. But John here continues and reveals to the readers in verses 25 and 27, not only the objective truth that Jesus is king, but also the identity of his people, the objective truth about the identity of his people, of, of us. Who are we under the rule of this king? Let's go to point number two, the truth of our unity. We see in verse 25, there are four different women standing as is described by the cross. And specifically in verse 26, you see one of the women, Jesus' mother, Mary, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know by the context of the book of John, John is John himself, standing there, Mary and John, nearby the cross, so closer in proximity, which is why probably they were able to hear Jesus' words. And then, verse 27, Jesus cries out something very peculiar, first to his mother, Mary, then to John. Woman, Behold your son. Then he cries to his beloved disciple John, Behold your mother. Now some, some commentators say that the main point here is that Jesus is telling John to take care of Mary from here on out because Jesus is about to leave and John needs to really provide for Mary and her financial needs and all that kind of stuff. But if that's the case, it would make much more sense for Jesus to first address John and say, John, behold your mother. As if John now has gained a mother who he's now responsible from here on out to take care of. But Jesus doesn't address John first. He addresses Mary first. Woman, behold, referring to John, your son. The emphasis here is not that John gained a mother to take care of, but primarily that Mary gained a son to embrace. Let's think about this. Why would that be comforting to Mary in this situation, to hear that she now has a son to embrace? First, imagine the agony that Mary is going through. I mean, she knew who Jesus was, the prophesied Messiah, the king who's going to come and save his people. 
but she never perhaps exactly knew how. But then you read Luke chapter 2, verse 35, and you see a prophet coming up to Mary during Jesus' younger years when he was a child, and this prophet said to Mary, when the time comes, when the Messiah completes his mission on earth and saves a people for himself, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary. So Mary knew that the way in which Jesus will save his people from their own sin will somehow cause her agony too. But she wasn't exactly sure how. Friends, she knows now. This is it. This is the event that will pierce Mary's heart. This is how Jesus the King accomplishes his mission of saving his own people. Can you imagine the agony Mary was experiencing as she looked at her son hanging on that cross? Her child that she cradled in her arms, nursed, laughed with, tucked in at night, watched grow up, she had to watch that child be flogged, crucified naked, and displayed in a shameful way to thousands of people right before her very eyes. I know as Christians, we don't want to idolize Mary and end up worshiping her and praying to her because throughout Scripture, prayer is an act reserved and to be done toward God and God alone. No man, no angel. But do not for a second minimize her pain. Mothers, wouldn't you rather die yourself than to have to witness your child go through this? Imagine the state she was in. And in the middle of her agony, her son addressed her and said, Woman, why? Why woman? Why not mother? Because Jesus is distancing himself from Mary here. Jesus is saying, Mary, remember who I am. Remember my identity. I am not ultimately your earthly child. I'm ultimately your king who came and took on flesh to die for the sins of my people. Mary, it's terribly important for you to remember this right now in the midst of your pain. Why? Because only seeing me as king, Jesus says, will you realize who John is to you. Mary and John, two people, not from the same immediate biological family, under the blood of Christ, are now two redeemed sinners who can call each other family. Mary and John, because of what their king has done for them, belong to a community held together by something much stronger than anything this world can offer. They are now truly family under the blood of Christ because of what Christ has done. Mary can now truly call John son, and John can truly call Mary mother. That's why Jesus addresses Mary first as woman, saying, Mary, I know you've lost a son. I know your heart is pierced, but do you know the power that my blood does? It cleanses sinners and unites them with one another in a way that not even biological ties can do. So look next to you, Mary. Do you see John? Behold, he now through my blood, is closer to you than your biological family is. He is, in every sense of the word, your son. 
And John, behold, Mary, she is now your mother. In fact, Mary, because of what I've done for you, every younger man who has received me as Lord and Savior, consider them your sons. Look at this cross with theological eyes, Mary. It has not robbed you of a son, ultimately. It's given you hundreds more. For every forgiven sinner washed by my blood, like John here, is now your son. But that can only happen if you first remember who I am. I'm not ultimately an earthly child. I'm not ultimately your son. I'm ultimately the eternal sovereign king who has died for your sins. So, woman, remember who I am and what I'm doing. And behold now what you have gained through it. Oh, we may think that's sweet symbolism, right? That's nice poetic language to comfort a hurting woman that she has now many children. It's very poetic. Friends, the genre of this text is not poetry. So don't read it like one. Christians, if you're here today and you've truly received Jesus as Lord and Savior, as your king who has taken away your sins and died on the cross in your place, look around you. If the person you're looking at also has truly received Christ as Lord and Savior, they truly, in the realest sense, is your family. Your tie with them is more eternal and real. I'm going to say it. It's not going to sound good to the culture that often makes a god out of biological families like ours. But Christians, your tie with one another is more real and eternal than the tie that you have with your biological family members who has not yet been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Christian, the tie that you have with one another is more real and eternal than the tie that you have with your biological members who have not received Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus is not calling us to neglect our families. He's redefining what ultimately family is. Remember this gospel is offered to all tongues, tribes, and nations, as we saw earlier, by the multilingual proclamation of who Jesus is to everyone there in the inscription above his cross. And when a local church represents that, a multicultural family who has been put together by God, filled with people from different backgrounds, different cultural presuppositions, different ages and levels of maturity, different temperaments and personalities, different kind of past wounds and sin bents. It will not be comfortable or easy to love one another. But if verse 16 to 24 tells us the objective identity of Jesus is as sovereign king, no matter the earthly circumstances, Verses 25 to 27 tells us the objective identity of Christians in this earth is truly as family, no matter the earthly circumstances, or even when our own sins might often muddy up that reality. Just as the objectivity of Jesus' kingship is final, no matter what goes on down here on earth at a particular given time, our unity with one another as family is also final no matter what fights and conflicts we might be in at a particular given time. Parents, you might have come to church today and you saw a lot of post-grads and people here who are younger than you. Behold, in the very truest sense, 
they are your children. Not poetically. Really. Really, really. <laughs> Younger folks, look at the older Christians in this room, although I know it's hard to tell because they all look so very young. You are to love them and cherish them and care for them like they are your own parents. You are brothers, sisters, parents, children, truly, truly, eternally. We have no problem looking at Jesus with theological eyes, that he is no mere man, but he is God in flesh who has come to die for our sins. Let me encourage us to look at each other with theological eyes. Because as sure as Jesus is king, you are family. But if we're going to do this well, we have to remember another objective truth that we find here in our passage today. Not only that Jesus is king, not only that we are one family under him, but also the fact that we are completely forgiven and have honor in him. Point three, the totality of our redemption. Look at verse 28 to 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So here at his last breath, Jesus still had the scriptures, which is the Old Testament, in his mind. And he said, I thirst. Now, he didn't just say this to manipulatively fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. Surely, it was also true. He was actually thirsty. Someone who was just flogged and forced to carry a heavy cross under the Middle Eastern sun would have by all means been thirsty. So the guard gave Jesus a sponge and filled it with sour wine on a hyssop branch for Jesus to drink. Now, this is not a means to numb the pain with alcohol. It's actually the exact opposite. How do we know? Because we saw that Jesus in another crucifixion account in the book of Mark, specifically verse chapter 15, verse 23, actually was offered real wine to numb the pain, and he refused it. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, Mark 15, 23. Because Jesus came with the resolution to take the full wrath of God, he didn't want any sedatives. The sour wine here is more like wine vinegar, a version not too different than what we use today to cook. Very, very low in alcohol content. Can't, you can drink a full glass of it and you probably even feel a buzz. More or less sipping some of it out of a sponge. This wasn't done to numb the pain. It was done to fulfill the scriptures. Specifically, Psalm 69 verse 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Look, even in his final breath, he's still in control. After all this is done, verse 30. Jesus said, it is finished. Or in the Greek, telestai. The word telestai comes from the root word teleo, which means to carry out a job or a command. So more accurately, perhaps the translation is, it is completed. It is fulfilled. My work, my task is fully completed. It's done. What work? The work of drinking every ounce of God's wrath without a single drop left on your behalf and my behalf. Titus 2, 13 to 14. Here's the gospel. The glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all lawlessness, all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's the significance. The objective realities being seen by theological eyes here is that not only that Jesus is king despite of earthly circumstances, not just that we are family and, and we are one despite of the petty little fights that we get into, but also that those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are truly, fully, perfectly, completely, without a stain left, washed clean of all your sins. Christian, feel convicted of sin you must because you now want to live in a way that pleases your Lord Jesus. So feel convicted, good, but to feel like there are still sins left unpaid, to feel guilt in other terms, that's insulting to the work of Christ. As if he missed something. As if it's not yet completed. Did he not say it is finished? So why do you still feel the need to pay for your own sins? It's done. See, what makes the relationship between Mary and John different than the relationship between Pilate and the Jews is that Mary and John did not seek out each other for the purpose of power ego or image management, which defines the relationship between Pilate and the Pharisees. See, Mary and John realize that they have an honor and an identity that towers above all earthly circumstances, that they are righteous and have honor, an honor and righteousness not found in this world or even in their own accomplishments, but because their king was stripped naked and humiliated in their place. So they can be robed in righteousness and holiness and honor. See, a community that's based their honor on the righteousness of this gospel truth will not use each other to gain honor but will give up honor for the sake of the other because they have all the honor they need. Look, living in a gospel community is not meant to be easy. You have no control in who God decides to save and throw into your local church community. It's easy to live life with a bunch of chosen friends because usually the reason why you're drawn to them in the first place is because they were easy and natural for you to get along with from the get-go. But you know what your eternal family is like? Uh, specifically portrayed in your local church, it's almost like a divine arranged marriage. By God's grace, he takes sinners out of the kingdom of this world through the blood of Christ and he plugs them into a community filled with people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, totally different from one another, united sometimes only by the blood of Christ. And then he says, go love one another. And we're often like, this dude... Ease was never the main purpose. <laughs> Sanctification was. Christ-likeness is. Proclamation to the world of a blood so powerful, it makes people love others who are different than them and sometimes annoy them. That's the purpose. Not ease. Friends, look up. Jesus is king. That much is true no matter the earthly circumstances. Then look around you. They're family. Christians around you are family. That's also true no matter of the earthly circumstances. 
So treat them like it. And you'll only have the power to do that if you look at yourself and remember the objective truth about who you are. That you've been clothed with honor and righteousness and splendor because of what your king did for you. So now you can enter into community, not looking to seek honor and those kinds of things from others, but willingly lay them down for their sake. You have all that you need in Christ. The degree to which you doubt this gospel truth is the degree to which you will use other people to cover up your shame. The degree to which you forget your objective identity in Christ and how you got it is the degree to which you will withhold love and forgiveness from your brothers and sisters in Christ. But if Christ is your sure and steady anchor of righteousness and honor, you'll be free to love and sacrifice for others instead of using and manipulating them for your own benefits like Pilate and the Pharisees. I pray this be the fruit that we see here in CCC as the gospel takes root deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts to never be removed, that we might be one and portray to this world a blood stronger than our comfort and preferences. Pray with me. Father, what a gospel. What a redemptive plan that you've planned out throughout the Old Testament. Genesis speaks of it. The Psalms speak of it. The prophets speak of it. And now in Christ you fulfilled it. A gospel that unites Jews and Gentiles and Chinese and Indonesians and Americans and Dutch and Canadians and whatever else have you into one family who is objectively one in you, no matter the earthly circumstances. Help us, Father, see each other with these theological eyes and truth. You are king, we are one. And remind us of this gospel, the only way we can approach the other and not need them to fulfill our, 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 our needs for honor and righteousness and affirmation is that if we first find those things in you, so that now we can follow your example and lay them down for the sake of our brother and our sister. Help us do this, Father. Only by your spirit can this ever be true. Lift our eyes to Calvary. Let us look upon the place of death, the instrument that has become a throne of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.